0: let's do it okay so hey everybody welcome to skype a scientist live uh today we are going to be talking with author nancy atkinson all about her book about uh travel to the moon and all that whole project it's gonna be super cool um so feel free to a- ask questions in the q a um i think many of us have been through this before but make sure we are respectful uh with everybody and uh let's get started So. Um, Nancy, would you like to introduce yourself and, and your book?
1: Sure. My name is Nancy Atkinson. I'm a science journalist and author. I write primarily for University of uh, which is the, one of the uh, longest-running space and astronomy news websites. And um, I've had the opportunity to write two books first one is about NASA's robotic missions to explore the solar system and beyond which is called incredible stories from space and then last year I had a book come out uh, in time for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions and my book is called eight years to the moon the history of the Apollo missions and I can share a picture of what that looks like there's the book um when my publisher asked me to write this book, uh, I knew I had to do something different because uh, previous Apollo books, and uh, as well as movies and documentaries, they usually focus on stories about uh, the astronauts or um, uh, people in mission control. But in reality, Apollo really encompasses so much more because it took the efforts of over four to make it possible to go to the moon. Now, um, to understand why we were going to the moon, you have to understand the the, uh, kind of the environment that we were in in the 1960s. It was the Cold War, which is a kind of a uh, a confrontation between the US and the Soviet Union. Uh, Each one wanted to show dominance and which country was better and which form of governance was better, you know, uh, uh, democracy or communism. So um, everything about the Cold War was just kind of, uh, uh, you know, it was it was really an interesting situation, and and um, each country wanted to show dominance. And what better way to show dominance than to launch large rockets into space? Um, So when I started working on this book, like I said, I I knew that I wanted to do something different, and I knew that I couldn't talk to all four hundred thousand people who who uh, worked on the Apollo program. But it tells the story of Apollo in the years 1962 to 1969 through the eyes and experiences of about 60 engineers and scientists. I conducted uh, personal interviews with um, over 40 people and and then I incorporated the oral histories of about 20 20 more. So for many of the people that I talked to, this was the first time that anyone outside of family and friends had ever asked them about their lives and experiences in the 1960s. But yet these people really made important and sometimes pivotal contributions to this effort of trying to reach the moon. Now back in the 1960s, we didn't have technologies like uh, computers that were small enough to fit into a spacecraft. We didn't have the technology, we didn't have the rockets that could reach the moon, we couldn't have, we didn't have the spacecraft, uh, all of the technologies to keep the astronauts alive on the thousand mile trip to the moon and back, and to communicate all that time. So all of these technologies had to be it invented and and designed. So the, the people that worked at um, that NASA or at the contractor companies, uh, they worked on designing and building all these, all these things that had never been done before, and uh, they needed to design unprecedented systems. So, um, I feel really fortunate to be to be able to tell some of the stories that hadn't been told before. Um, one of the persons that helped me get in touch with so many people was named Norm Chaffee, and he was a he's a was an engineer at NASA, and uh, he. He uh, had me come down to Houston, and he set up uh, two full days of back-to-back interviews where people just came into a room and told me their stories of what it was like back in the 90s. Um, and so, some of the I just wanted to share two people that I had the chance to tell their stories. Um, I feel really honored to tell the stories of two of the very few women engineers at NASA during those days. Uh, Dottie Lee helped design the heat shield. <clears throat> and Kathy Osgood was an engineer who worked on the Rendezvous team and Rendezvous is figuring out how two spacecraft can meet up in space. And uh, uh, that was a, really a challenge that really nobody knew how to do in the 1960s. And I also got to interview one of the very few African American engineers uh, in those days. His name is Earl Kyle, and He worked at Honeywell in Minneapolis. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he was—he's an example of one of the uh, uh, the contractor companies that that were so important to the Apollo program in the 1960s. Uh, one area that I thought was really interesting was the simulations. I mean, how do you uh, how do you practice flying for flying in space when you hadn't been to space before? So NASA had to figure out all of those things. Um, the, the Apollo guidance computer, as I mentioned, computers were were the size of rooms back in those days, so they had to figure out how to make them small enough to fit into a spacecraft, and um, you know, enable the trip to the moon. So it was really a a, a wonderful uh, era, uh, unprecedented really in in helping us to to reach the moon and to do things that had never been done before, and. Uh, so it was uh i really feel honored to tell the stories of these people that that haven't had the chance to tell their stories before and uh, i guess i'm ready to take some some questions now
0: okay great um so we've got a, a couple questions well quite a few questions here um how many people in total have been to the
1: moon so there was um, I, I believe the it's like 17 people. Uh, and uh, so there was the um, the first mission to land on the moon was Apollo 11 in 1969, July of 1969. And then after that there was so uh, and two people walked on the moon for each mission. and one astronaut stayed in orbit. and uh, so there was Apollo 11 and then Apollo 12. And then Apollo 13 didn't land on the moon because they had the accident there. Uh, that was, that's the 50th anniversary of that mission is coming up. So I'm sure you'll hear about that in a- April. There'll be lots of people talking about that. And then there was Apollo 14, 15, 16, and 17. So uh, two people times six is 12. So that's 12 people that walked on the moon.
0: Awesome, thanks. Um, how much time did it take to make the first rocket?
1: Uh, the first rocket that flew, or the first rocket that went to the moon
0: Let's say moon rocket for okay for, all they,
1: right well they um uh President Kennedy announced in in May of nineteen sixty one that he wanted NASA to try to reach the moon, and so um, they you know it was a very short time period uh it was eight years. From when he announced that to when we actually got to the moon. There was a mission, there was a, there were a couple of missions actually that went to the moon and they did not land there. The Apollo 8 mission went in um, December of 1968. So that was the first rocket that went all the way to the moon. They just circled the moon and came back and then um, in, let's see, it would have been I believe may of nineteen sixty nine the Apollo ten mission went, and they did kind of a dress rehearsal of trying to land on the moon, but they didn't the way on the moon they just they just went down a ways to practice how they were going to do that
0: That's awesome yeah. uh, so based on all your work and you <clears> kind of got a, a sense of the human stories of all this, how long do you think it'll take us uh to get to mars um ballpark
1: oh boy that's uh that's a hard question because I think. Back in the 1960s, the people who worked on going to the moon—I think they thought that we'd already be on Mars. Um, but it's really, really hard. Uh, space travel is incredibly difficult, especially when you've got humans in the mix when you're trying to to send humans to really far places because uh, the the life support system uh, making that operate for long periods of time, like you know a, a, a true mission to Mars would. It would take probably at least uh, a total of two years. It would take about eight months to get there. You'd have to spend a certain amount of time on the surface of Mars back and it all kind of depends on um, orbital mechanics and the best times of of going so it's the so Mars and Earth are closest together so the the travel time is shortest as possible. Um, We've been contemplating going to Mars for a long time, but the difficulty just kind of rears its head every time we think about it because it's um, it's just so daunting. And the the technology is, uh, I mean, we really don't have the technology even right now to land humans on Mars. So it's going to take at least another dozen years, it would be my my estimate. But, um, you know, if, if something happened that we really, really needed to get to, to Mars, like, um, you know, President Kennedy really, really wanted us to get to Mars, and um, so we did it in, in eight years. And who knows, it could happen that we really needed to get to Mars in, in, in a short period of time as well.
0: Awesome. So you said it takes eight months to get to Mars ballpark. How long did it take to get to the moon?
1: It took three days for the Apollo astronauts to reach the moon. So, um, th- you know, the when the, the rockets launched, uh, to leave Earth orbit, you have to be traveling at about 24,000 miles per hour. And still at those speeds, it took three days to reach the moon. And um, now we've had some other spacecraft. the uh, For example, the spacecraft that went out to Pluto which was, there was no people on board that spacecraft, but it was it was a robotic spacecraft that could take pictures. And it was a lot smaller than the Apollo spacecraft, but that spacecraft was able to fly past the moon in just uh, about nine hours. So that didn't take as long because it was a smaller spacecraft and they used a more uh, a powerful rocket. Um, but yeah, three days is probably what it would take us, uh, right now as well
0: do you know about how much it cost like the whole moon uh mission how much that all cost to to do
1: oh boy um i'm not very good with with uh financial numbers here but i know it was it was quite expensive and that's one of the reasons why we haven't gone back is because just it is really expensive to go it um you know it takes a lot of people it takes a lot of resources, and um, so that's that's one of the reasons we haven't gone back. I, you know, I could get those numbers for you, I think, you know, later if you wanted to uh, let, you know, let me know your email address or something, but um, uh, yeah, it was expensive, several
0: Yeah, it's okay. We don't expect you to know the answers to all these questions. Uh, The scientists, even in the experts in their field, sometimes they get asked questions by, like even a third grader will ask me questions about squid, an animal I've been studying for over a decade. And sometimes I just don't know. And that's okay. Um, So what did astronauts eat on this mission? And how did they do that?
1: Oh, yeah. The the food, uh, the first food in space was kind of uh, not so great. It was, you know, they... It, when you're in space, you're in a zero gravity environment, which means that things can float around. You float around, so it's a, it's a challenge to 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 eat things because things will just float off your plate, and you can't you can't drink water out of a glass. You have to have it in a little a bag or a, a special cup, and so the the first food in space wasn't that great and the astronauts kind of complained about it because you were eating out of tubes or uh, mashed up food that was not probably the greatest but they've really made huge improvements Um, the astronauts that are now on the space station they have a great variety of food they can even have fresh fruits and vegetables up there because they have a, a a special refrigerator and they have resupply missions that go up there and and bring people fresh food and they're they're actually growing some vegetables up on the space station as well. So that's, uh, that's really interesting. And if, if people are ever going to live in space for long periods of time, we need to learn how to do those kind of things, grow our own food and uh, be kind of self-sustaining instead of having to bring resupply ships all the time.
0: Awesome. Um, so what made you decide that you wanted to write this book?
1: Well the easy answer to that is that my my book publisher asked me to write the book. <laughs> but um I've been a science journalist for almost 20 years now and always have been fascinated by the Apollo missions to the moon just how how daunting a challenge that was, how uh we were in such a short period of time. So I really enjoyed getting the chance to talk to people, you know, firsthand face to face and uh, really learn about what it actually took those 400,000 people to actually make it possible. So um, I really enjoyed it. And um, I would say it's just kind of an offshoot of of what I've been doing for, for most of my career.
0: Awesome. So what else have you written about?
1: Well, uh, for Universe Today, the, the website that I write for, um, we write about everything that's going on in space. Um, from human missions to the robotic missions to uh, discoveries that, excuse me, I'm going to mute here a second. (coughs) Oh, maybe I didn't mute for that, sorry. (laughs) Um, uh, So I've written about all sorts of things that are going on in space, Um, you know, discoveries by telescopes here on the ground, telescopes on space, in space, people who are researchers who study things like black holes and dark matter and dark energy, all the kind of crazy things that are are, uh, out there in space. Um, I mentioned my first book which was about NASA's uh, robotic missions which are the the missions that that don't have any people on board. They're uh, special robot spacecraft that have cameras and sensors and all sorts of things on board and um, there's really uh, They're really interesting because <clears throat> even though there's no people on board, it really takes a lot of humans back here on Earth operating those spacecraft to make it possible. And uh, uh, the, the story, <clears throat> the humans that work on these spacecraft are, I think, some of the most interesting stories that I've ever had the chance to report on.
0: That's super cool. Um, what other countries have landed people on the moon?
1: Uh, the U.S. is the only co- country that has landed people on the moon. Um, it, it was kind of that environment of the Cold War, where we really wanted to show uh, our dominance and what we could do technology-wise, and 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 that kind of thing. That really spurred this this um, race to get to the moon. Uh, the The Soviet Union tried to land people on the moon, and they were not successful uh they they had a huge rocket that was supposed to bring people to the moon and they had a lot of problems with it and it it uh uh it blew up you know uh, during during launches and uh so they didn't quite get there um and then once the US had landed on the moon they just kind of thought well okay they've they've done that uh we're not gonna we're not gonna focus on that right now so they but uh the soviet union or which is now the um uh, now known as russia uh they've they landed several robotic spacecraft on the moon japan has landed robotic spacecraft on the moon um uh, india has had Uh, spacecraft in orbit around the moon so uh, a lot a lot of robotic spacecraft have been to the moon but only the US has landed people on the moon.
0: Cool. Um, What animals have been to space?
1: Oh the animals in space are really really interesting because of course when we were first launching rockets to space we didn't know what it was gonna be like for people and if people could actually survive being in space. So at first they sent up animals. They sent up small things like mice and rats to see if they could survive the the zero gravity environment in space. Um, they sent up some monkeys. That was kind of a uh, a monumental, uh, I guess, uh, achievement because it, it kind of proved that a, a being like a human could survive in space. Uh, I know that there was uh, a cat in space and dog in space. Um on the on the space station now they've had lots of different animals. They've had spiders and they've studied how spiders can spin webs in space, uh, ants, mice, um, bees and and uh different flying insects just to kind of monitor and, and study how these how these creatures can fly around and, and uh be in space. So it's uh, Animals in space have been a uh, part of the long history of our space exploration.
0: Uh, fun fact: the Hawaiian bobtail squid, which is the squid that I study, uh, has been to space too.
1: Oh, cool! <laughs>
0: they were looking at how um, how bacteria can get into an animal um, in like a in healthy relationships. So, like, we wanted to see, you know, if you have uh, human children in space, if their gut microbiome is going to be all messed up. Uh, or if bacteria can get in there normally. And so we use the squid as a model for that. Um, but anyway, so uh, do you have any tips on how to get started in writing books?
1: Oh, gee. Um, yeah, you know, just just write. It's <laughs> to, to learn how to write, you just have to write. And whether it's as simple as starting your own journal and and journaling and writing about things that happen to you from day to day, if you have something that you're really interested in to, to research, like, so I've always been interested in space exploration. And even though I'm an English major, um, I've always been interested in science, even though I'm not that great in, in science and math, but, um, I've always been really interested in it. So write about what you're interested in, do some research and find out things, talk to people, you know, uh, Uh, people are doing all sorts of zoom meetings and skype a scientist and all that you can find out so much um, uh, online and I know so many people are are really reaching out and and doing this more now with uh, everything that's going on in the world but uh, yeah just just write and and of course a great way to learn how to write well is to read so read a lot read about things that you're interested in read stories read figure out how people tell stories and write about stories and um, do conversations between people it's a it's a it's an art to to figure out how to write a conversation between two people and make it seem real and readable and and fun. so yeah, do lots of reading and and start writing.
0: That's great advice. Um, so do you know why NASA named these missions Apollo?
1: Yeah, um, there was, you know, they always like to name spacecraft and missions after kind of notable things, and Apollo was uh, a Greek god that was a a messenger and a a traveler, and so they thought this would be a good name for uh, the missions that were going as far as humans had ever gone before to the moon, and uh, so one of the NASA engineers came up with this idea, and Everybody else liked it, and that's why they chose Apollo.
0: Sounds good. Um, so in the writing process, do you ever encounter times, um, just like times when you, um, like writer's block, or or just kind of uh, books when, times when you think you wanted to quit? And if so, uh, what did you do to, to deal with that?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, especially writing this book, because this book about Apollo, Uh, Because I had kind of a hard deadline of when it needed to be done uh, in order for it to come out for the 50th anniversary last July. So, yeah, when there's a lot of pressure on you to to get something done and to and to write it, it it can be a daunting challenge. It can be hard to to figure out how to put everything together. So, I guess when I had some writer's block, what I would do is usually go for a walk, go outside, kind of clear your mind of, of everything that you're trying to focus on and just give it some, um, g- give yourself some distance from what you're doing and uh, you know, try to, try to think about something else for a while. But the best way to write is to just sit down in your chair and write. <laughs> you, you, you've got to push through it sometimes. Nope, didn't hear there that. There we go. Sorry. Uh, okay. What was your favorite interview in the book? Oh wow, that's a that's a great story. Uh, that's a great question. Um, all of these people were just really wonderful to talk to. All of them, of course, uh, since this happened over 50 years ago, they were all in their 70s, 80s. One gentleman, when it was in his 90s, that I talked to, so they've got a lot of great stories and a great sense of humor and. A great sense of accomplishment of, of what they did. Um, I have to say um, probably uh, Earl Kyle, the person that I mentioned when I was talking about the book. Um, I live in Minnesota and Earl is from Minnesota so um, I went to went to meet him and, and to interview him and he had just some great insight stories from those days in the 1960s and Working in Minneapolis, which uh, I'm a, um, I live close to that city. So, he, you know, told me what it was like living there back then, and uh, he just he has a wonderful sense of humor, and uh, great insights on all things space, science, technology, and I really enjoyed our conversations.
0: Very cool. Um, do astronauts have to do math in space?
1: Oh yes. Yep. Uh, but thankfully, they've got, you know, on the Apollo missions, they had this uh, uh, Apollo guidance computer, computer, the first really small computer, uh, kind of the first personal computer. And, uh, but yeah, you've got to figure out uh, your trajectory and where you're heading and that you've got to align it with uh, uh, the Apollo astronauts if their computer, they had to learn how to use guidance use a star to kind of uh, navigate by the stars like the ancient uh, sailors back on earth used to use but they just in case the computer would not work or something they had to learn how to do that Uh, had to learn how to do angles and measurements and uh, yeah a lot of math but um, uh, don't if you're if you're not really great at math don't worry about that because Um, we do have better computers now and we, um, have, uh, people on the ground that, that are, that help the astronauts all the time. And, and Apollo had that as well. So, um, but yeah, being really good in math is, is a big help with flying in space.
0: I don't think space flight is for me. I'm going to stick to the ocean (laughs) because
1: that sounds so scary. (laughs)
0: Um, how big was the lunar lander?
1: Oh, it wasn't very big at all. So it was the lunar lander, uh, the lunar module was only big for two people. And uh, they didn't have any chairs on board because they wanted to save weight. So they had to stand, which when you're in zero gravity or one sixth gravity, when you're on the moon, that's that's not too bad to have to stand all the time. Um, So it wasn't very big. I don't know the exact... Uh, dimensions, but I do tell a story in my book of of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, the first two astronauts who landed on the moon. So they had to sleep uh, after they had uh, done their moonwalk and then uh, they were going to try to go to sleep and they had a really hard time going to sleep because there were no beds, no pillows. Uh, They had one of them had to sleep on the floor and and he only uh, you know there wasn't enough room to stretch out all the way he had to kind of curl up in the fetal position and the other astronaut uh, neil armstrong s- slept on a a ledge and then he had to um put his feet inside of a tether so he could kind of lay f- lay as flat as possible needless to say they didn't sleep very well on the moon <laughs> in the lunar module because they were so cramped and it was kind of cold in there and it was noisy all these systems and fans were running in the background, so they did not sleep very well. The, the uh, future Apollo missions that landed on the moon, they had little hammocks that they could uh, string up inside of the lunar module, and so they slept a little bit better. But um, yeah, it was, it was tight quarters in there.
0: Would you ever want to go into space?
1: I would. I would, uh, I would enjoy, uh, I think, seeing the Earth from, from space. I know that has to be an amazing experience. All the astronauts who go to space, uh, even on on the space station, they say the view is just, you know, that you could sit there and look at Earth all the time. And I I think that would be beautiful. And just to have a a different point of our planet, to see it from different eyes, I think that would be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, that seems totally life-changing. Yes, Um, yes. Very cool. Um, So you said 400,000 people worked on this. That's unbelievable. So how did all of those people like communicate and work together and, you know, together make this thing happen?
1: Yeah, that was an interesting challenge because back in the 1960s, of course, there was no internet. There were no video chats like this. There were, you know, we didn't have email. So everything was done, um, you know, telephone, people traveled around the country to try to make sure that everything was was coordinated. And, you know, you think about all the various parts that were needed. I think somebody once said that there were a million parts in the Apollo spacecraft from the, you know, the just down to the nuts and bolts of, of putting these spacecraft together. But the life support systems that I mentioned earlier, systems, um, Uh, They monitored the astronauts' heart rates and everything, you know, while they were in space. Um, So, yeah, the the challenge of of doing this all, um, people across the country, contractor companies across the country, uh, one of the Apollo engineers told me that um, one year he traveled every week of the year, you know, went to all the different companies that were we're building the various parts and components, and they were just all trying to make everything work together. That was that was a huge challenge because of of not having uh, the communications that we have today. So it was yeah, it was either telephone or face to face. So there was a lot of travel involved.
0: Cool. Um, what was the biggest scientific discovery that came from
1: space exploration? Hmm from uh, space exploration in general or just uh, to the, well, let's talk about, I'll I'll mention the moon. So uh, going to the moon, the astronauts brought back some of the moon rocks. And of course, we had never been to any other uh, planetary body in our solar system before. And so this was our first um, first close-up study of another planetary body. And um, scientists really didn't know before we went to the moon what the surface was going to be like some of the scientists thought well what if it's all just a big dust ball and we land on the moon and sink in that was one idea that people uh, thought might be possible uh, and they didn't know if what you know what how it, what it was going to take to actually land successfully on the moon um, so the Apollo astronauts brought back, I believe, over 800 pounds of moon rocks in the, in the uh, the six missions. We've learned a lot about the moon that it was uh, likely formed from a collision between another body and Earth a long, long time ago when Earth was just being formed. So the moon is has some similar um, geologic kind of makeup. Uh, similar to Earth, but of course with no atmosphere uh, and uh, uh, being constantly pummeled by by asteroids and meteorites, it's developed very differently from Earth. So um, I think the Apollo program was instrumental in helping us to understand uh, how to go about doing planetary science and planetary geology and figuring out all those things. Um, As far as um, just space exploration in general, uh, one, a few things, uh, you know, we're, we're learning how stars are formed and how they, how they live their lives. We're learning about, um, uh, I guess one of the biggest surprises back in the, in the 1940s or 50s was when people realized that the, the universe was expanding and, it, and its expansion was speeding up. Uh, the, and the Hubble Space Telescope helped confirm that. And um, yeah, we're just learning that our our universe is a really interesting and um, kind of perplex- perplexing place because it's uh, a lot of times we're learning that things are so different than what we expected them to be.
0: Very cool, um, so did the astronauts have any side effects once they came back to earth?
1: Yeah, uh, so when you're in space and you you have this zero gravity environment, you don't have the weight of gravity um, holding you down, so when you're there for an extended period of time, you don't have to use your muscles very much uh, to walk around and and to to move around and and so um, the Apollo astronauts didn't have too big of a problem coming back to Earth because they were only gone. I think the longest mission was um, uh, maybe ten days. But but when they did come back, they found yeah you know my muscles had weakened a little bit. My uh, and when they did some studies, their their bones had degraded just a little bit. For the astronauts that are on the space station, they're up there um, between three to six months. That we've had a couple astronauts up there for. Over a year, they've had to really work hard to counteract the um, kind of the degrading uh, things that happen to your body. You 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 lose muscle, you lose bone mass, because you don't have to use them. You don't have to use your muscles very much in space. So, the astronauts on board the space station have to spend at least ninety minutes every day exercising just to kind of counteract that. So. uh, that's that's the biggest problem for going to places for t- the uh, for going to Mars, for example. If you're going to have a an eight month mission in space with no gravity, you have to learn or you have to do things to counteract that, uh, where your your muscles and bones degrade. And of course, you wouldn't want to land on the moon with brittle bones or land on Mars with brittle bones and step off, and the first thing you did walking on Mars was to break your leg. That would be a horrible way for the mission to to, to take place or to, to have happen on the mission. So you've got to keep your bones strong and, and your muscles strong as well.
0: Solid. Um, so if you were to go to the moon now, uh, would you still see the astronauts' footprints where they were or would they get like blown away by now?
1: no there's no um there's no weather there's no atmosphere on the moon so everything that the astronauts put on the moon their footprints uh they're probably all still there just as they left them because there's no wind there's no rain there's there's nothing uh that would have changed that the only thing that would have changed that is uh so the moon is constantly bombarded by little bits and pieces of uh, space debris, you know, rocks and dust and all that. Now on Earth, we don't have a problem with that usually because our atmosphere, our nice thick atmosphere, if a little rock is coming through that, if you've ever seen a shooting star, that's that piece of dust burning up as it goes through our nice thick atmosphere. The moon doesn't have an atmosphere, so anything flying through space, any piece of uh, little tiny rock or a big rock or a piece of uh, of dust hitting moon moon's surface, and that might make a little, uh, a little crater or a little indentation on the surface of the moon. Um, that might change any, anything that was left on the moon by the astronauts.
0: Cool. Um, so what do you think you will write about next?
1: Oh, boy, that's a good question. I don't have any books in mind right now to write. Um, I do write for Universe Today um, every week, so I'm constantly writing, like last week I wrote about the asteroid Bennu, which there's a spacecraft right there there right now called Osiris-Rex, and that's studying this asteroid. Um, so I got to write about that. I write about um, new discoveries being made, like um, uh, about black holes or stars or um uh, of course we've got a bunch of missions going on right now, besides osiris rex there's we got the, we have the Mars rover that's driving around now uh the rover curiosity the spacecraft that I mentioned earlier that went to pluto that's still flying and it's way out into the Kuiper belt now and it's uh it's still studying the environment out there it's looking for other um, Kuiper belt objects that would be kind of similar to Pluto, uh, probably smaller, looking for those kind of things to study. Uh, We have a spacecraft that is, um, um, we had a spacecraft that was at Saturn, (coughs) excuse me. Um, And we have a spacecraft that's at Jupiter right now too, sending back really, really beautiful pictures. So um, I get to write about that uh, all the time. I really like planetary science.
0: That's awesome. Um all right one last question then we will ask our final two questions that we ask everybody um okay are there any rules in space saying what you can or can't do
1: Yeah there's um there's a it's called the space treaty and that was kind of agreement between the various countries that nobody could claim a a planetary body or the moon or uh any any portion of space cannot be claimed by any country. So uh, space is open for exploration for every, for everybody. So that I think is a great agreement. Um, other than that, um, I, th- I think what's really great now is that different countries are cooperating and doing missions together because, uh, you know, it is expensive, it's really hard to do. So the more cooperation we can get through uh, scientists around the world, countries around the world, the more exploration we can do. And I think it's fun to share those experiences with, uh, with our, our fellow humans around the world too.
0: Totally. Okay, so we ask everybody these two questions. One, if there's one thing that you wish everybody knew about your area of expertise, what would that be? And then if you, there was one thing that you wish everybody knew about literally anything, just one piece of information you think everybody in the world should know, what would that be?
1: Oh boy, these are hard questions. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let's see. <clears throat> well, I think the. Um, the one thing that I wish everybody knew about Apollo was that it did take 400,000 people to make it possible, that it wasn't just the astronauts or the people in mission control or even just the people at NASA. It was all these companies around the country and across the world that that really made it possible. And it really was, I heard somebody say that Apollo was was handmade. And I think that's a great way to put it because so many things were done by hand, especially you know with the technology we had in the 1960s. know all these all the rockets were put together by hand all the various components everything so I I think it's um, we went to space it was really a human endeavor and really people coming together so um, that's what I think about for Apollo for um, wow that is a hard question about what I wish somebody knew about anything I think, basically, it's just we're all in this together. We're all on planet Earth together. And the better that we can get along and cooperate and do things together, the the more joyful our life will be and and happier we'll all be living together here on this planet.
0: That's great. All right. What's the name of your book one more time so we can all write it down?
1: Eight Years to the Moon, the History of the Apollo Missions.
0: Awesome, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really cool hearing all these stories. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Kelly, for signing for us.
1: Yes, all right. awesome. wonderful.
0: We'll be talking tomorrow at noon. Um, we're gonna be talking to Chuck Wendig. He's a sci-fi author. Um, and one note here is that his books are uh, sometimes a little dark. So for the younger folks, maybe, maybe, skip this one uh, just use your judgment parents, uh, with Chuck, but he's great. And we're really excited. Uh, other than that, we are a nonprofit. So if you can support us either on patreon.com slash Skype a scientist or paypal.me slash Skype a scientist, we're a 501c3. Your donations are tax deductible. Um, and we're just trying to bring science to as many people as humanly possible. So again, thank you, Nancy and Kelly. Uh, we'll see y'all later. Bye.
1: Bye.